Welcome to the second episode of QSource's Rethink Tobacco podcast series. This series focuses on increasing awareness in our communities around the health impacts of smoking and tobacco use. In this episode, you'll learn from our two experts and learn about how smoking and tobacco use affects the whole community. We want to welcome back to the conversation our subject matter experts from Rethink Tobacco Project associated with the IU Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center and the Department Office of Community Outreach and Engagement, Deb Buckles and Gage Vanline back to the table to continue our conversation around smoking and the effects that it has on our society and our communities. We want to take a deeper dive today and talk a little bit more in detail about some of the burden that smoking has on our communities and learn as much as we can on some of the deeper dive issues that you both will present with us today. So who would like to get us started? So Kathy, I'll take it away from there. Thank you so much for having us back. And today we want to focus on tobacco use in the behavioral health population. And when I say behavioral health, I'm referring to individuals with mental health disorders, as well as substance use disorders, and then of course, co-occurring disorders. And I think this is a really important topic because we see such higher rates of tobacco use among these individuals. So we can see tobacco use rates anywhere from two to five times higher in this population of behavioral health. And specifically among adults with any mental illness, tobacco use rates typically are two to three times higher. And we can even see a breakdown of tobacco use prevalence by mental health disorders. So we see very high rates of tobacco use in individuals with schizophrenia, as high as 90% of people diagnosed with schizophrenia use tobacco. And then closely behind that is alcohol abuse and other substance use. And then, of course, major depression, tobacco use rates can be as high as 80%. And so it is really, really alarming in the number of tobacco use health consequences these individuals are seeing. And so that's why we really want to focus on this group. Substance use disorders, we can see rates very, very high. And so it is important to think about this when patients are receiving behavioral health care. So if they're in a substance use disorder program or in a mental health treatment setting, it is very important to have conversation around, do you use tobacco and why tobacco use can impede or impact recovery? So we hope that with this message, we can maybe make a change in behavior of providers and helping them to understand why it's important for them to address tobacco use with their patients. I will say too, that when we look at the different rates of smoking, what we also see is these individuals with behavioral health disorders typically die as a result of their tobacco diseases, not their behavioral health disorders. And so it is really, again, very important that we address this where they're getting their care for their behavioral health disorder as well. The other thing I wanna add about that is that we know that many behavioral health providers are trained in treating substance use disorder and mental health conditions. And tobacco use disorder is a form of substance use disorder. And it's been in the DSM 
since the 1980s. Tobacco use disorder is also the most common substance use disorder. However, when we look at behavioral health settings, we know they're doing a much better job today than they were even 10 years ago. But many of these individuals just feel like they don't really know how to help their patients with quitting tobacco use. And they are experts in behavior change, and they are experts at dealing with substance use disorder. So it's just using all of those skills and expertise and interventions they already do on a daily basis. It's just thinking about how to incorporate tobacco in that. So we know that there are many, many centers that have or sites that have tobacco-free grounds policies, but they may, and they may be asking about tobacco use, but they may not be taking that next step of helping the client to receive appropriate pharmacotherapy or medications to help them with quitting. And they may not be providing motivational interviewing or cognitive behavioral skills as it pertains to tobacco use. So we'd like to see some of our partners out there working more to address tobacco use. We know that tobacco use is not the primary reason why that individual is coming to that behavioral health setting, but we know that if they don't quit using tobacco, they're going to die of their tobacco-related disorders, and these tobacco use problems do impact behavioral health disorders. So people that continue to use tobacco are more likely to relapse from other substance use disorder, and they're more likely to have more symptoms related to their mental health disorder. We know that continued tobacco use also affects many of the medications these patients are on so that the medications aren't working as well, and patients have to be on two to three times higher doses of many of these medications. So again, helping people to quit using tobacco is going to help them from an overall perspective to improve their mental or behavioral health disorder. So when you talk about partners and working with partners, are you an extension of the provider or do you come in and work in alignment with the provider? And if so, what kind of timeline do you have with that provider to make sure they have all the tools that they need? What we do is we'll come in and we'll provide some technical assistance. We'll help them help them look at, at their entire system, how tobacco is, how they ask about tobacco, how they help clients if they do, what policies they have around tobacco, what resources or interventions they're already providing. And then we help them identify where we can help enhance what they're already doing. So we might be looking at workflows or we might be looking at integrating some order sets. We have lots and lots of different resources. We might be teaching them about the Indiana Tobacco Quit Line that they can use as a resource to refer patients. We might be teaching them about how to ask using motivational interviewing skills. How do we ask and advise our patients to quit using tobacco? And we might be looking at helping them to create a tobacco-free grounds policy. So there's lots of different ways we can help from a technical assistance perspective. But then what we also do is um, when we first get started with an organization, what we like to do is a knowledge, attitude, and belief survey where we're asking all of their staff about their knowledge, their attitudes, and their beliefs around tobacco use in their patient population. This helps us really plan a better education intervention. So what do their staff need to know about tobacco use in this population? And then we can also provide that tailored training 
I think that's critical because so many of us have our different approaches and those with lived experience probably have a whole different approach than someone with maybe just the clinical side. Does that make sense? And when you talk about being that resource and that specialist, you know, I can appreciate the education and the and just the different resources to be able to cater to that individual and cater to that individual provider. So thank you. That's important. Because this is funded by our grant, we can do all of this free. Oh, wow. Yeah, we just need to advertise that. <laughs> <laughs> we do, we do. I think this podcast will help get the word out, but I think, I mean, are you entertaining the idea of doing presentations across some of our community coalitions that we have across the state? Okay. What about when you talk about the tobacco treatment specialist training, what does that look like actually? I'm curious. So it is a somewhat intensive course. So it's a nationally accredited course. There are 20, I believe 29 different accredited tobacco treatment specialist courses currently available in the United States. The the curriculum that we use is out of the University of Massachusetts, um, and it is fairly intensive. So there's a part one and a part two. Part one is done online at your own pace, and then it is about, I would say it's probably between six and eight hours of online time. Part two is a live I won't say face-to-face because we've been doing it virtually since the pandemic, of course, but it is three full days and it is intensive, but the evaluations that we have been getting, people just absolutely love it. They learn so much. Uh, They learn about motivational interviewing. They learn about the different pharmacotherapies. There's seven FDA approved medications for tobacco treatment right now. They also learn about cognitive behavioral strategies specifically related to tobacco use. Again, some of those are very common in the behavioral health field anyway. And then they learn about assessment and intake. How do you assess a patient's tobacco use? What kinds of inventories or tests can you use to to learn about a patient's dependence level? And then they learn about developing a treatment plan specifically for tobacco. Now, this isn't, you know, what we'd expect every institution, organization, or agency to be able to do. But Uh this is, you know, maybe they could send one or two people to the tobacco treatment specialist course to come back and serve as champions in their organization. And those individuals can really help the organization as a whole to uplift the tobacco treatment integration piece. That's incredible training. It sounds just completely invaluable that we we need more of it. Absolutely. Another um, training that we just started offering, and it's a four-hour course. Now, granted, I mentioned the tobacco treatment specialist course is about six to eight hours online and then three full days. This other course that we're just getting ready to start offering is a four-hour course, so it's it's much more streamlined. It's not as intensive. You still learn all of those things, but just not quite as in-depth. It's also great for peer recovery coaches. Peer recovery coaches could also do the TTS training, of course, but a lot of times people don't have that time that they can commit to the TTS course. Another criteria of the TTS is you have to be tobacco-free, including vaping, for six at least six months prior to the training. 
And oftentimes people just aren't there yet. And so this would be a great way for somebody that hasn't had six months tobacco-free to also learn about how they can help people with stopping tobacco use. Right. Just in my own experience, I know that, you know, I have a daughter that tends to vape and she did not understand that, I mean, it's still related to smoking and that there's still a connection there. So you're still actively harming yourself, right? Even though they're, and and I say this, that society tends to, to make it out to be less harmful, the harms is still there. And just that education piece when it comes to vaping. And I know that's a big issue with the youth. And I know in our community coalitions across the state, we have many coalition work groups around the youth and promoting education and getting that information in the schools and getting the parents to understand because sometimes they're only mimicking what's happening at homes. We like to call it whack-a-mole. There's just always a new tobacco product on the market that we're combating. And Mm -hmm. people, the general population thinks this new product is newer, it's safer. And oftentimes that isn't the case. There's still much to learn about vaping products. They haven't been around all that long, but absolutely that is a Mm -hmm. tobacco product. Most commonly, they are manufactured by the tobacco industry. We still have a lot to learn about it. It's definitely not something that we would want people to switch to, but oftentimes that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot of myths around smoking still, and especially myths around smoking and behavioral health consumers too. But there's Mm -hmm. a lot of myths around vaping and that it's water vapor, it's safer. Mm -hmm. And and we know that they still contain a lot of the same chemicals and toxins that are in tobacco smoke. They might be at a lower concentration, but then there's other things in that vape liquid that are, are not in tobacco smoke, for instance, propylene glycol and glycerin. And those things change chemically when they're heated and then inhaled. Those obviously are FDA approved for, you know, oral ingestion for somebody to eat it or drink it. But we don't know what happens long term when somebody heats that and that chemical structure changes and then they inhale it into their lungs. So, again, we still have a lot to learn about these products, but we know Mm -hmm. that the um, flavorings in them attract a lot of youth as well. So we've got a lot to do, a lot of ground (laughs) to cover with those products as well. Gage, I'm curious, what are some types of the organizations that you've worked with in your outreach and your community work? I wonder if you could just give us some examples of some of those outreach organizations that you've worked with. I know you mentioned some healthcare providers. Are there any other types of provider organizations that you've worked with? Thing that we think focuses on behavioral health, we work very heavily with community mental health systems, substance abuse disorder treatment centers, and with some FQHCs here and there too. In the last two years, we've worked with 15 different systems, and they're okay. all doing different type of work. It's all around tobacco, but some of them are just implementing tobacco-free grounds policies, or maybe they're revising their policy to include e-cigarettes or vaping products now. Some of them are working to implement what's called ask, advise, refer, which is the brief intervention model. And so they're asking all patients about tobacco use, advising them to quit, and then referring them typically to the Indiana Tobacco Quit Line or another resource. And then some of them are integrating 
quitline referral. So that can refer to the quitline electronically or they can through their EHR or they can refer via fax or the online portal to the quitline. So there's three different tiers they could be working on. And some of the groups we're working on are just working in one of those tiers where some of them might be working in multiple tiers. Well, I thank both of you so much. The information continues to just enhance our awareness and understanding, taking a deeper dive as we did today. It's just needed and the awareness is so needed. And I love the fact that you're willing to present in some of our community coalitions across the state and work with providers and continue those partners and those wonderful contacts that you have already. It just, I just think, you know, the networking is crucial and this podcast can just be a resource for you and again to our listeners if if you've missed the first podcast please go to our website www.qsource.org to access all of our resource information including our podcasts thank you both and i know i would love to have you come back to the table and continue the conversation on what communities can do to take action and how we can collaborate moving forward. So I want to thank you again both today and look forward to our next conversation.